Hello, I'm Rachel Barenbaum, author of the novel Atomic Anna, and you are tuned in to Check This Out. We are coming to you from the Howe Library in Hanover, New Hampshire, and we are sponsored by the Jack and Dorothy Byrne Foundation. We're here to bring you books and authors that we think you should be reading and talking about. And if you love these books as much as we do, which we know you will, please go to your local library and check them out or go to your local bookstore and buy a copy. Tonight, my guest is Jenny Jackson. Her brand new novel, Pineapple Street, is absolutely unbelievable. It has just rocketed out of the gates. Straight, instant New York Times bestseller. Good morning, America pick. We're so excited to have Jenny Jackson here to talk to us about her book. Hi, Jenny. Welcome to the show. Hi, thank you so much for having me. This feels surreal. (laughs) I bet. I bet. I can't wait to ask you all about it. Uh, before we get started, for people that don't know you, that's possible. There are some people who don't know you yet, even though you've rocketed out there. I'm going to read your bio. Um, so Jenny Jackson is a vice president and executive editor at Alfred A. Knopf, a graduate of Williams College and Columbia University's publishing course. She lives in Brooklyn Heights with her family. Pineapple Street is her first novel. Oh, my God. First novel. What a start. Jenny, how does it feel? I just I'm I've entered into like wildest dreams territory, you know? I mean, my goal was to write a book that people would read, but my I really felt like it was going to be a slow build and my hope was that, you know, word of mouth would be good. And the fact I just I didn't expect for it to hit the New York Times bestseller list right away and I'm so like I think I'll process it in a few <laughs> months right now. I'm just like what? <laughs> That's amazing. Well, congratulations. Um, And also for listeners that don't know, you are also just an amazing editor. So you have had lots and lots of writers who have gone through this before you. Yeah, I realized I did some math the other day and I realized that I've published more than 50 authors and like 30 New York Times bestsellers. And so you would think that it would feel like old hat, but the truth is it's different when it's your own. Yeah. I mean, when it's in your own words, your own heart, right? There's nothing like that. So could you read us maybe a first paragraph or just a little bit so we can get your voice and write a feel from the book? Yeah. All right. So this is from the perspective of Sasha. There was a room in Sasha's house that was a portal to another dimension. And that dimension was 1997. Here, Sasha discovered an egg-shaped iMac computer with a blue plastic shell, a ski jacket with a stack of hardened paper lift tags still affixed to the zipper, a wrinkled pile of airline boarding passes, and a one-hitter with an old yellow lighter hidden in the back of a drawer. Every time Sasha mentioned to her husband that she'd love to put her sister-in-law's high school ephemera in a box, he rolled his eyes and told her to be patient. She'll get her stuff when she has time. But Sasha had her doubts. <laughs> da, da, da. <laughs> All right. So tell us, what is this book about? Starting with that first paragraph, where do we go? Yeah, this is the story of three women who live in this same neighborhood of Brooklyn Heights, and they're all tied to the same family and the same limestone. Um, so we have Darley, who was the oldest sister in the Stockton family, and Darley was born with money. And then we have Sasha, who is the in-law. She's married into the Stockton clan. And so Sasha has married into money. And then last, we have Georgiana, 
who is the baby of the family and becomes the millennial conscience of the group. And she wants to give all their money away. And not everyone feels like that's a great idea. I love that. I love that description. But you also have Tilda, the mom. We have Tilda, the mom, who I'm sure at some point I'll give it away and let you know she's my favorite character. So I'll just go out and say it now. I love her. (laughs) I love it. Why do you love her? Um, She was so much fun for me to write. She's so unapologetically herself. And also, I think her dialogue, I think her dialogue's hilarious. And so I often had to like pull myself back while I was writing Tilda because I was like, okay, Jenny, this book can't all just be Tilda saying funny stuff. Like you need to actually move the plot forward. Stop just writing about Tilda. So she just flowed. Yeah. It's so funny you say that you liked, she said uh, funny things because I felt like whenever she was going to have a conversation, instead she said, let's go play tennis. Right. That was always her well, fallback. Yes, whenever a difficult conversation arises, she says, let's play tennis. But um, whenever Georgiana is trying to reason with her, she offers advice that is really suspect. <laughs> yes, I love that. Um, OK, so one of the things that I really, really loved about this book is that it is just unapologetically about money right? Money is up there. And so many people are uncomfortable about talking about money, dealing with money, right? Money is a very hard subject. And this book is just front and center about money. <laughs> so yes. how do I mean, you come to that? I think that um, I don't really talk about money with my friends. I don't really talk about money with anybody because it's such an uncomfortable subject. And what better to address in fiction than an uncomfortable subject? Um, I was reading this article that, you know, the reason I was inspired to write this book was I was reading this article in the New York Times by Zoe Beery. And the article is called The Rich Kids Who Want to Tear Down Capitalism. And it's about these millennial heirs who are socially minded and they find that their great fortunes are at odds with their conscience. And so they, in in this article, are trying to give away their family money and like their family lawyers are like, nope, 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 you know, trying to set up all these roadblocks. And I just became fascinated with the idea of um, this moment in history that we're living in where income inequality has become a huge problem in America. And also right now, this the generation of millennials is set to inherit the most money in American history. This is called the great wealth transfer by finance types. So what does it mean when we have a generation of people who grew up watching Occupy Wall Street, who grew up interested in Bernie, in AOC, who who really question the fairness of inherited wealth, combined with the fact that this generation is going to inherit the most money ever. You know, it's just like this perfect storm. And to me, was a fascinating way to dive into a novel about money. Yeah, I love that. And you even set up the novel. You start with a quote from Zoe Beery, right? With this exactly, millennials will be the recipients of the largest generational shift of assets in American history. That is yeah. crazy. I mean, we don't talk about that enough. Um, and so you have sort of the one of the people who is the conscience, right, of this is Curtis McCoy. He's one of your characters. Um, and one of my favorite quotes in the book is he's profiled um, in a publication. And he says this is about page 205. People like me shouldn't exist. I'm 26 years old. There's no logical reason for me to have hundreds of millions of dollars. 
right? I mean, there you go. You just say it. And it's like, he's right. Why should a 26-year-old have hundreds of millions of dollars? Yeah. And I mean, there's this great quote that Warren Buffett ha- has given where he says, your lot in life should not be dictated by your membership to the lucky sperm club. And that kind of says it all, you know, like, no, you shouldn't you shouldn't be born with such drastic advantages and disadvantages. Yeah. But here we are. Yeah. And then you don't offer solutions, which I also like, right? You're not like, this is what we should do about it. <laughs> I know. I'm so sorry, but I don't have a solution. <laughs> oh, we're not going to find one easily. And and if we don't no, talk I mean, about the solution it. solution is tax code. But that's really like, that's not like the sexy stuff of fiction. Let's be honest. I'm not going to write a tax code novel. So instead, I'm going to grapple more with the emotional side of it. Right. Well, so we have Curtis's, you know, sort of one extreme. He has a couple hundred million, maybe a billion dollars. Right. But then you also have characters in here who are making, you know, seven figures, right? Comfortable seven figures. Um, and then you have a quote in here with them talking about um Everyone they know is also making that kind of money and spending that kind of money. And even when they have more than they could realistically need in a lifetime, it doesn't feel like they have enough. So you also have people, right, who are earning seven figures and just don't feel like it's enough. Oh, my God. I mean, it's a keeping up with the Joneses thing. And I think also there must be some kind of addiction because I think that when all of your peers, the people who you respect are earning money, I can see how if you're, you know, if you're a finance type, uh, if you're a hedge funder, whatever, you start to equate success and a sense of worth with earning. And this is something that Darley, the oldest sister, really grapples with because Darley is an intellectual. She is a finance type. She went to business school. She took a job working a, at an investment bank. She's passionate about aviation. She's an av geek. And she had a high-flying career until she had two children in rapid succession and couldn't do it. She couldn't. I mean, I, I had two small children and I have two smallest children. And there does come a point for a lot of mothers where working an extremely demanding job while also breastfeeding, while also getting woken up a zillion times in the night, it's unsustainable. So Darlie drops out of the work world. And for her, it is a huge loss of her sense of self. And the money is some of it because her husband is earning money. She's not earning money and it messes with her sense of worth. And so you know, whether it's people earning, you know, seven figures and thinking it's not enough or whether it's people who just start to equate earning with value, it's our, it's really tied up in a lot of people's psyches. Yeah. So I love that you um, brought up Darlie and this question of, you know, her having, you know, quitting her job and depending on her husband because she also gives up all of her money, her trust fund, right? She says yeah. she's not going to take it. Um, for complicated reasons, people can read <laughs> to talk about that. But but I love there is this feminist aspect to this book where um, she talks about how, you know, um, when she comes back from maternity leave, the men around her, the boys, right, are saying, how was your vacation? And that yep. just hits so close to home, no matter how much money you have, right? People yeah. around you think that maternity leave is vacation. And when she is trying to pump because she wants her babies to have breast milk, 
they make mooing noises as she walks through the bullpen carrying her cooler. And for any of us who, you know, have tried to work while giving our children breast milk, there are just, it's really not acceptable yet in corporate America, you know, and especially if you're traveling, I mean, like I pumped in an airplane bathroom at one point, there was a line of angry people trying to get in. I kept my, I kept my milk behind like the concierge desk at a hotel. I mean, our culture is just not designed for this. It's, it's a mess. Right. Even when you have all the money in the world, right? It's still not yeah. working. So I love that you brought that up. Some of the other universal themes beyond money in here, of course, are family, right? And what it's like to marry into a new family. Talk about that theme. Sasha, sort of the outsider. Sasha's the outsider. And, you know, I think I came to this because of the pandemic. You know, I live here in Brooklyn and a lot of us with young children fled New York at the height of the pandemic. It just didn't feel like we could keep our kids safe. And so I took my children to my in-laws in Connecticut. My in-laws are not like the in-laws in this book, but I just spent months living with a family that was my family, but not my family of origin. And, you know, sometimes they would do things like they wash their, before they eat their vegetables, they wash them with soap. My family does not do that. They, you know, they use the microwave where I use the steamer. I mean, like I, we could just, there are a million things that other people's families do. And I just felt on a daily basis, this is so interesting how no matter how loving another family is, you're never really totally the same family. And so that was sort of a spark for me. And with Sasha, it's much more complicated because for her, Class is a huge issue. She's from a middle class family. And while they are saying the right things, they are not totally accepting of Sasha. And then there are just these hilarious moments that aren't even necessarily class, but like when Sasha is drinking a bubbly water out of a can instead of a glass, her mother-in-law is horrified. Or in one of my favorite moments, they're at a restaurant and Sasha orders a soup that comes in a bread bowl and starts to rip off the bread and eat it. And her mother-in-law is like, you're eating the bread? <laughs> <laughs> that was great. That was a good scene. Um, but also you mean, I mean, you also make it sort of very metaphorical or very like, right, you just show us because there's the house, Sasha and her husband Cord move into that family house. And they're like, we want you to have this house. We want you to make it yours, but don't touch anything. Don't yes. move anything. And they haven't taken out their own belongings. And so the closets are full and there isn't even room for Sasha like put an empty suitcase. And that is just this metaphor for welcome to our family, but there's no room for you yeah, here. Yeah, but not really. Um, yeah. So, of course, Sasha has her own past and she had a boyfriend, Mullen. Um, and, you know, yeah, I loved Mullen and I wanted more of him. Did you write more yeah. of him? I, I, I feel like I have a million more pages I could write about Mullen. Like, I know this character really well. And he um, he made some mistakes, um, but he's a really interesting guy. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he'd made some terrible mistakes and you bring in, you know, abuse and some violence. And, it you know, there's some tough pages in there. But still, I just, you know, I felt like that part of her you know, she she hadn't quite resolved. And as we get towards the end, she she realizes that. Right. And she realizes maybe she also hasn't been as accepting as she could have been. 
No, it's Sasha's struggle that, um, you know, I mean, maybe some of us have been in this situation where she and Mullen broke up, but Mullen was still good friends with her brothers. And he so he still had this strong connection to her family, even though they broke up. And I mean, I have friends who like one of my guy friends, his ex-girlfriend still goes out and stays with his parents on weekends when he's not around. That's crazy. Like, he's married to someone else. He has a child, but like she just keeps showing up. And and I think that, you know, his mother has a really good friendship with her. So these are the complicated things where you can break up with someone, but it doesn't mean your family's going to break up with them. And she's mad that her family, she feels like her family chose her ex-boyfriend over her. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and you just you drew that really, really well. I just loved that part in there. So one of the things that really struck me was the Stocktons um, and uh, Georgiana in particular. You know, they have so much money, right? They have the world at their fingertips. And yet Georgiana has never really been anywhere. Right. She lives in this tiny little world. So, you know, she could have everything and yet she kind of has nothing. Can you talk about why you chose to keep her so insulated? Yeah, she has this really like surprising awakening at one point. She um she develops a crush on a coworker named Brady and Brady has lived this big adventurous life and Georgiana realizes that all the places she's traveled are really just sanitized tourist destinations. She's been to Paris, she's been to London. She's walked the Great Wall of China with a with her high school group, but she has never actually seen how people live in the world. And that's, I think, a very alarming thing for her to realize about herself, that she thinks of herself as worldly and traveled, but she's just experienced actually rich culture in this very thin swath that is pretty much identical in all the all these other places. Yeah. But I, I love that you can't we can't have these kinds of conversations, right, about the wealth transfer or class, right, unless you realize what bubble you live in. Right. So I love yes. that she has this. Also, you use this is not a spoiler. There is a fire, right? You burn down the heart of the family, the dining room, right? It sounds like a hideous dining room, by the way, that hasn't changed in like 70 years or whatever. But you burn it down. Talk about the fire. Well, it's really funny because I had no intention of that happening. It was this like occasionally when you're writing, it's like, it's like you're you're typing faster than you can think or something. And the last line of that chapter and the flames began to lick at the all of it. I was like, oh, my God, what did I do? I just burned it down. You know, it was like I wasn't planning for that to be part of the book, but it just happened. Yeah. <laughs> but, but it's another great metaphor, right? Of like burning down the family so they could hold it again. <laughs> got to start fresh, got to rebuild from the ashes. Yeah. yeah. Oh, my God. All right. So I want to shift gears just a little bit um, and talk about writing itself. Uh, our listeners yeah. love to hear about the writing itself. And can you tell me what was the hardest part about writing this book and getting started? Well, I have some really, really great resources in that I've worked with writers as an editor and I've soaked up their advice. And the most helpful piece of advice anyone gave me was my writer, Chris Bajalian. So he wrote Midwives and the Fight I Attendant. I love him. I love his He's books. <laughs> awesome person. Yes. Great writer. He's written 22 books. And so he knows a thing or two about how this works. And he said to me, every book will try and kill itself at some point. 
You just got to push through. And I reached a point when I was writing where I felt like I, um, I got stuck and I didn't know how to move the plot forward. And Chris's words meant so much to me. Just keep it going. The other thing that I did, and I think this could be a really helpful tip for a lot of writers, is I, in my first draft, was incredibly strict with myself about the structure. I said, every single chapter is going to be 4,000 words long, and it is going to be made up of two 2,000 word scenes. If you make if you make yourself write in bite-sized chunks, that is so achievable. If you say, all right, my goal for the next couple of days is to write 2,000 words. I just, I'm going to write a scene and it's 2,000 words. You can do that. And so my book over revision, it's, it's really, it became quite different, but I found it incredibly helpful in my first draft to say, rotating point of view, ABC, ABC, each chapter, different point of view, each chapter, 4,000 words, cut in half with two scenes. And and it just, giving yourself a structure like that is um, very motivating and also keeps it from feeling overwhelming. That is the most specific writing advice I've ever heard and very actionable. <laughs> and you know what? You're going you're gonna to go rogue. You're going to do your own thing. You're going to say, no, I'm actually going to do 8,000 words, whatever. Try it this way. It's a great way to start. Yeah. Yeah. And 2,000 words is very achievable, like you said, right? You're not saying 90,000. Right? No. One no, and I would on a good day, I would write two thousand words in a day. And then there were many, many days where that was not the case. But it's it's that is a bite-sized chunk. Yeah. Okay, so tell us what it was like to be so you're this editor with tons of famous books and authors, right? Gabrielle Zevin, tomorrow, 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 right? I mean, crazy rich Asians, right? You've done these amazing books, and then you have a book and you're gonna go on sub. Right. Or you're going to find, no. find an agent. What did that yeah. feel like? Well, so one of the first things I did is I called my writers and I told them that I had written a book and that I was going to try and sell it because I think that they have placed such an incredible amount of trust in me as their editor. And I felt like I just wanted them to know like, yeah, this is something I'm trying. I'm not leaving you. I'm still your editor. I, I'm just like, this is a little voyage I need to go on, but like I'm I'm staying at Knopf. I'm staying your editor. And it was so moving how supportive all of my writers were. And I got to tell you, if um, the book had gone out on submission and nobody had bought it, I would I would be glad to be able to go back to my writers and be like, wow, that really felt bad. And they would be like, yeah, rejection stinks <laughs> because every writer experiences rejection at some point. So it would have, you know, it's... I think in some ways, maybe I would have felt like crummy having told them that I was trying something and it failed. But like my writers, I have such amazing, amazing people that I work with that they would have been so supportive about it. And it kind of would have been great, too. Yeah. So you were famously sympathetic, right? And like kind to your authors. I mean, of course, you still have to tell them, right, this stinks or whatever. <laughs> Rewrite for me. Yeah. But now, right, the tables were turned. You were you were on the other side. You're getting, you know, feedback that, you know, your editor is saying, cut this, whatever. How did it feel? And how has it changed you as an editor? Well, you know, hilariously, I knew that I wanted to work with an editor who I was a little bit afraid of. <laughs> I wanted I wanted to work with someone where I'm like, I'm going to do what she says, you know? And so I was so lucky to work with Pamela Dorman yes. because 
Pamela has been doing this longer than me. She is a wonderful person. She's turned into a good friend. Bad news. I'm not scared of her anymore. But <laughs> I knew I was going to do whatever she told me because she is so clear. She's upfront. She knows what she thinks and she knows how to make books work. And so I went into it being like, all right, I trust Pamela. Like I just trust her. She partnered with an amazing Canadian editor, Nicole Wynn Stanley, an amazing UK editor, Venetia Butterfield. The three of them worked together on their editorial notes. I have to tell you, the first editorial letter they sent me was fifth. No, 18 pages long. Oh my God. It's the longest editorial letter I have ever heard of. How long are your letters usually to give us context? Um, Three pages, maybe five. Okay. Like that's Just hope normal. everyone heard this, right? Three to five yeah. is normal. Jenny got 18 pages of comments. 18. And I did what I call a protective read, which is when you like skim your eyes over it to be like, what is the big picture? But I like can't even take it in right now. And then I I put it down and I thought that what I was doing was pouting and there might have been some of that. But also, I think some of what I was doing was like letting the back of my mind start to consider how I was going to implement those changes, you know, and it was really hard. I, I mean, as an editor all the time, I meet with writers who are like, I love revision. I love edits. After having been through it, I'm like, I think you're lying because they're awful. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I love the honesty. So how has it changed you as an editor other than that? I mean, way, way, way more sympathy, way more understanding that when you ask a writer a question about their work, it might be something that they don't know. I remember once I asked Catherine Heine um, about her book, Standard Deviation. I said, oh, how did the husband and wife meet? And she said, I don't know. And I was like, we'll make it up. And she was like, no, that's just not something I know. And I was mystified by that. I get it now. Sometimes there are things that you just don't know and anything you try is going to feel fake and weird. So you just that's just not going to be part of the book. You know, so I think I've developed a lot more understanding of what what is knowable as a writer. Yeah, I love that. Um, Because sometimes we don't know. You're absolutely right. We have no idea. (laughs) But we need to know, right? And the good editor tells us that. Um, So now now that you've gone through this, um, but you're still in your editor chair, right? You're not leaving Knopf. You're still there. So um, lots of my listeners are writers themselves. What kind of advice do you have for people who are about to go out on submission? Oh, um, sorry. Submission means you already have an agent right? And your agent loves your book and is ready to go sell it. So she's going to send it out to her 20 favorite editors that she think are going to love your book. So you're going on submission and maybe that's when Jenny's going to read your book. Yes. All right. So when your book is out on submission, it's going to feel nerve wracking. You're going to feel incredibly exposed. When you begin to schedule calls, if you get some calls with editors, be as open as you can to their feedback. And I'm going to tell you, when I had these conversations as a writer, it was incredibly hard to hear anybody say anything other than you're perfect. I love you. (laughs) But people had comments and it was really hard for me to hear. I put on a big smile and I faked it. Do the same. And then think about those notes because the right editor for you is going to have suggestions for changes. The best editor for you is probably going to have some feedback that in the moment is going to feel a little rocky, um, but just be be as open as possible to the process. But also 
you're going to, um, you know how they say when you buy a house, you walk in and you know if it's your house. I think that when you talk to the right editor, you're going to have that same feeling. Yeah. You're just going to click and you're going to know. I love that. Okay. So is there another book in your future? I hope so. I hope so. I'm addicted now. You know, like sometimes it's terrible when you're writing and sometimes it's really hard. But when you write a great scene, it's like the best feeling in the world. And I don't know how I can just like not want to chase that feeling. Yeah. Oh, I love it. All right. So I have to ask you one more question because you were talking about all the edits. Is there anything that got cut that you, you know, miss still? Um, no, they saved me from myself. I had a sort of like little storyline with Darley late in the book um, where with Sai Habib that won't mean anything to people until they've read it. And um, my editor told me to cut it and she was so right. So there's nothing I miss. I'm like, I really feel like Pineapple Street is the best I could do. I feel really like I did my, I did my best. I hope people like it. I love it. Well, thousands of people love it, right? You're, it's already gone bonkers. So amazing. Congratulations. Jenny Jackson, thank, thank you. you so, so much for joining us here and check this out. Thank you for having me. What fun. So much fun. You've been tuning in to check this out with the How Library. Thank you to our producers extraordinaire, Jared Dennis and Megan Coleman. Thank you to our sponsors, the Jack and Dorothy Byrne Foundation. Tune in again next month. April 12th, we have Priya Guns joining us with Your Driver is Waiting. April 26th, we have Claire Jimenez, What Happened to Ruthie Ramirez. And May 24th, we have Nana Kwame Ajay Brenya with Chain Gang All-Stars. These are all amazing books that I think you should be reading and talking about. So check them out. Thank you for joining us. Good night, everybody.